Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey everyone, Nate Hale here. Just a reminder that this is the second part of a two-part episode on the mystery of D.B. Cooper. If you haven't heard part one yet, I recommend you go back and do so. We'll be right here waiting for you. And now, on with the show. There's a stretch of sand along the banks of the Columbia River near Vancouver, Washington called Tina Bar. Back in February 1980, an eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram was camping with his family near the beach. Even though temperatures at that time were hovering around the mid-40s, this area remained a popular tourist destination. That morning, Brian's father, Dwayne, told Brian he should go pick out a spot to build a campfire while he gathered some firewood. Brian found a part of the beach that appeared both flat and dry. He knelt down and began scooping out some of the sand to make a hollow area where he and his dad could build a fire. As the boy dug down, his fingers brushed up against something odd. This wasn't a rock. It felt like paper. At first, Brian thought he'd gotten lucky and discovered some old newspaper they could use for kindling. But as Brian began brushing away the sand from the stack of paper he'd found, it quickly dawned on him just how lucky he really was. This wasn't a pile of old newspaper. A picture of Andrew Jackson's face was staring up at him. It was a thick stack of $20 bills, and it wasn't the only one. Brian had never seen so much money in his life. Brian called his dad over. Dwayne was dumbfounded. These banknotes looked old and tattered. They kept digging and found three stacks of $20 bills buried in the sand, $5,800 in total. Brian and his dad did the responsible thing and informed the police. When the police ran the serial numbers and the bills, they got a surprising hit. This wasn't just any buried treasure. This was D.B. Cooper money. It was a small fraction of the $200,000 ransom the Skyjacker jumped out of a plane with back in 1971. Up until that day, none of the money had ever been recovered before. Over the next few days, FBI agents combed the beach looking for more of the missing cash. But the three stacks of bills Brian Ingram discovered was all they could find. For a little while, this new discovery would shine a fresh spotlight on the story of the mysterious Skyjacker. During the course of the more than 30 years the FBI spent investigating the crime, they looked at nearly a thousand suspects, some of whom were far more credible than others. In the years following the Skyjacking, a dedicated community of citizen sleuths have emerged to have studied every aspect of D.B. Cooper's daring crime. And it seems like every one of them has their own favorite suspect. 
In this episode, I'm going to tell you about a few of the most likely suspects who may or may not have been the missing Skyjacker. And I'll bring you up to date on the latest forensic science which some investigators believe may finally answer one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in history. Who was D.B. Cooper? I'm Nate Hale, and I can prove I'm not D.B. Cooper, mostly due to the fact that I wasn't born yet. And this is The Conspirators. Originally, some of the FBI investigators theorized that the bills must have washed downstream from one of the Columbia's many tributaries. Some forensics experts who examined the bills announced that the way the paper disintegrated was consistent with them making their own way along the river, rather than being deliberately planted. Agent Ralph Himmelsbach, who had led the D.B. Cooper Task Force since 1971, told reporters that he believed the stacks of cash had to have been deposited on Tina Barr sometime in the first year or two after the hijacking. Based on the state of damage for both the bills and the elastic bands holding the money together. The problem is, this conflicts with other historical records, though. Back in 1974, the river was dredged and the clay from the bottom had been deposited on Tina Barr. The bills were discovered above that layer of clay, which seems to indicate that the bills had been deliberately buried there sometime after the dredging. Another reason you have to consider that the bills may have been deliberately planted is that if they had simply been washed down the river, then how did the three stacks manage to stay together? Yet another question that remains unanswered is why one of the stacks of cash was missing 10 bills. If someone spent them, then those bills made it into circulation without anyone identifying them as D.B. Cooper money. Ultimately, it would be up to a new generation of investigators to try to solve these mysteries. Two months after the discovery of the money on Tina Barr, FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach retired. It was at his retirement party when Himmelsbach met Flight 305's first officer, Bill Radicek, in person for the first time. As the two men got to chatting, Radicek told Himmelsbach an important new piece of information. He said that on the night of the hijacking, he was pretty sure that Flight 305 drifted slightly off course east of Portland. But if that was the case, then that meant Cooper may have jumped somewhere outside the purported drop zone where everyone had been searching. Himmelsbach informed his colleagues about this new revelation, but then, just a month after the FBI agent's retirement, on May 18, 1980, a large part of the search area became irrevocably compromised. That was when Mount St. Helens erupted about 70 miles northeast of the search radius, scattering volcanic ash and devastating the surrounding landscape for miles around. If D.B. Cooper died after jumping, as many in the FBI still thought he did, and if his body landed in the area near Mount St. Helens, then it's likely his remains would never be found. But despite the Fed's belief that Cooper likely died, there remain plenty of investigators who think that not only did he survive the jump, but he also managed to get away with the money scot-free. Over the next 15 years, no new leads emerged and it seemed like the case had gone cold. But that didn't stop an ever-growing number of FBI agents and civilian investigators from looking at a number of potential suspects who might just be D.B. Cooper. On March 28, 1995, a 70-year-old man named Dwayne Weber was dying in a Pensacola, Florida hospital room. His wife, Joe, was there by his side during his final days. She had married Dwayne 17 years earlier, doing so against her family's wishes. 
Dwayne was older than she was. In fact, he was older than anyone she would normally consider dating at the time. But when Joe met Dwayne, he was funny and charming, and he acted like a real gentleman. He told Joe up front that he had kidney disease and he didn't expect to live much longer. But Dwayne managed to keep going for another 17 years, although eventually his kidneys did begin to shut down. During his last few hours, he told his wife a startling deathbed confession. As Dwayne lay there dying, he asked Joe to come closer. He needed to tell her something important. Joe leaned in and asked him what he wanted to tell her. Dwayne said, I have a secret I want to tell you. I am Dan Cooper. The name didn't mean anything to Joe at first, but in the years following Dwayne's death, Joe began to put the pieces together that not only was her husband not who she thought he was, but she also came to believe that he really was the most infamous skyjacker in history. After Dwayne's death, Joe found a wallet with the name John Carson Collins among her husband's belongings. During the time Joe knew him, Dwayne had been a slick-talking salesman and an antique dealer. But after his death, she learned he had a secret and lengthy criminal past. Dwayne was a seasoned con artist, and he also had a military background. He had been discharged from the Navy decades earlier. He had been arrested at least 16 times throughout his life for various crimes. Joe always knew that Dwayne was reluctant to talk about his past. But as she began to read more about D.B. Cooper, she began to put together all sorts of little clues she had picked up during her 17 years of marriage to Dwayne. Like D.B. Cooper, Dwayne was a chain smoker. He also drank the same kind of alcohol Cooper asked for on the plane. Joe claimed that she once overheard Dwayne talking in his sleep about leaving fingerprints on a plane. He told her that an old knee injury he had came from jumping out of a plane. Another surprising clue came when Joe went to her local library and checked out a book on D.B. Cooper, only to find handwriting inside that she said looked just like her husband's. Dwayne Weber does bear a striking resemblance to the composite sketches that were made of D.B. Cooper. On one occasion, about six months before Brian Ingram found the D.B. Cooper cash buried on Tina Barr, Dwayne took Joe on a road trip to an insurance convention in Seattle. They made several stops along the way, which in hindsight appear awfully suspicious. One pit stop they made was at a location near Lake Maryland where Dwayne pointed at a line of trees, and he told her that's where D.B. Cooper walked out of the woods. At the time, Joe didn't really know who Cooper was and didn't think much of it. But later on, the couple drove to the Red Lion Motel outside of Vancouver, Washington and booked a room for the night. The following morning at 7 a.m., Joe recalled Dwayne getting up and telling her he had to go out for a bit. When she asked where he was going, he remained cryptic. But when he returned a few hours later, his hands were covered in mud like he'd been digging. After Dwayne cleaned himself up and they were back in the car, Joe noticed a paper bag by his feet. When she asked what was inside, Dwayne said it was some trash he needed to get rid of. The next time they stopped for a break, Dwayne threw the bag into the river. This was in a location about nine miles upstream of Tina Bar, where Brian Ingram found the D.B. Cooper ransom money several months later. Following Dwayne's death, Joe discovered even more strange clues to her husband's identity. She found he kept a safety deposit box she had known nothing about. Among the documents inside, Joe found a copy of an old Soldier of Fortune magazine open to an article titled, The Man with All the Secrets. This wasn't an article about Cooper. 
but the article did contain a picture of a man jumping out of a plane with a parachute. When Joe got a look at Dwayne's tax return, she discovered that in 1971, just a few months after the skyjacking, he bought two brand new cars with more than $7,000 cash. She didn't know where he got the money from. At the time, Dwayne was only making about $1,000 a year at his job. All these little details eventually prompted Joe to inform the FBI about her husband. The authorities did take a serious look at Dwayne Weber considering both his physical appearance and criminal background, but they eventually ruled him out. There remained a number of things about Dwayne that didn't add up to him being D.B. Cooper. For one thing, even though Dwayne had a military background, there doesn't seem to be any time when he would have received any parachute training. He also didn't seem to possess the specific knowledge about the Boeing 727 that D.B. Cooper demonstrated. Furthermore, Dwayne Weber's fingerprints didn't match any of the prints lifted from inside the plane. Many years later, forensic experts were able to lift DNA from the J.C. Penney clip-on tie that is believed the skyjacker left behind on the plane. This DNA test effectively ruled Dwayne Weber out as a suspect. The problem with the famous D.B. Cooper sketches is that the drawings have an everyman quality about them. There are a lot of Cooper suspects who bear some resemblance to the sketches, although many people have even pointed out how much the sketch looks like Bing Crosby. Just five months after D.B. Cooper executed his daring skyjacking, a man named Richard McCoy Jr. jumped out of a plane over Utah with a $500,000 ransom. On the surface, McCoy makes a compelling D.B. Cooper suspect. The former Sunday school teacher served two years in Vietnam as a demolitions expert and a helicopter pilot. He was wounded in action for which he received a Purple Heart. He was also awarded an Army Commendation Medal and the Distinguished Flying Cross for a daring helicopter rescue. When he returned from Vietnam, McCoy considered a third tour of duty, but his wife insisted he stay home. Instead, McCoy took up skydiving as a hobby. McCoy wanted to study law enforcement, and he told friends how much he wanted to become an FBI or CIA agent. But McCoy never got his wish. Money was tight, and McCoy struggled to support his wife and two children. When McCoy's wife threatened to divorce him, he grew even more desperate for cash. He told a friend he thought Cooper should have asked for half a million rather than the 200000 he got away with. He also told the same friend he had a foolproof plan to hijack a plane. But McCoy's plan wasn't so foolproof, though. He was quickly caught by the FBI just a few days later with $499,970 in a cardboard box. Naturally, many in the FBI believed early on that they may have caught D.B. Cooper. But McCoy insisted that he wasn't Cooper. The feds were skeptical and McCoy remained at the top of their suspect list for a while. McCoy was sentenced to 45 years in prison, but he managed to escape using a fake gun made from plaster of Paris stolen from dental supplies. McCoy and a group of convicts managed to sneak away from the prison in a garbage truck, but eventually the feds managed to track him down and McCoy was killed in a shootout. Another potential Cooper suspect came to the forefront after a man named Lyle Christensen emailed a private detective agency hoping he could hire them to put him in touch with the movie director Nora Ephron, who he wanted to sell his story to. Christensen had tried to tell his story to the FBI several times. It was only after one of the private detectives became interested in the man's story that Christensen's brother Kenny Christensen came to the forefront of D.B. Cooper suspects. 
On the surface, Kenneth Christensen checks a lot of boxes. He was born in 1926, which meant he would have been 45 years old at the time of the skyjacking. Most of the witnesses agree Cooper was probably somewhere in his 40s when he committed the skyjacking. In 1944, as the war was going on, Kenny Christensen enlisted in the Army and became a paratrooper. This provided the man experience with both explosives and jumping out of an airplane at night. For a few years after the war, Christensen traveled the world. Eventually, he settled into a new career, working for Northwest Orient Airlines, the very same airline that D.B. Cooper skyjacked. Christensen started as an airplane mechanic and eventually became a flight attendant. According to property records in October 1972, about a year after Cooper's jump, Kenny paid $14,000 in cash for a modest ranch in Bonnie Lake, a small mountain town in the Cascades. A year later, he paid $1,500 for a parcel of land. The question is, where did Kenny get the money? Most of Christensen's co-workers say he was quiet and kept to himself. Lyle Christensen became convinced his brother was D.B. Cooper after seeing an episode of Unsolved Mysteries about the skyjacking, and he noticed how much his brother looked like the sketch. But that's not the only way Kenny Christensen matched up with D.B. Cooper. Christensen was a heavy smoker and liked to drink bourbon. Lyle said his brother resented Northwest because of the low pay and constant strikes by workers who had grievances against the company. When Kenny lay in his deathbed, he told Lyle he had a terrible secret, but he couldn't bear to reveal what it was. Florence Schaffner, one of the two flight attendants who saw Cooper up close, was shown photos of Kenny Christensen, and she said the band did bear a strong resemblance to the Skyjacker, all except for his hairline. She said Cooper had more hair than Kenny. Ralph Himmelsbach admitted that Christensen did fit as a Cooper suspect in a number of ways, but he points out that at 5'8", Kenny was a few inches shorter than most people believe Cooper to have been. Most of the eyewitnesses say the man was at least 5'10 and closer to 6 feet tall. Although it remains a compelling theory to think that Kenny Christensen was D.B. Cooper, you also have to consider the holes in this theory as well. Even after the skyjacking, Kenny remained a Northwest Orient employee. It doesn't make a lot of sense that Kenny would have kept working there on the off chance he might actually run into one of his co-workers who would have seen him hijack the plane. Ultimately, the FBI ruled Kenny Christensen out as a suspect because all the evidence against him was purely circumstantial. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another compelling Cooper suspect is Ted Braden. He was a Special Forces commando during the Vietnam War, a master skydiver, and a convicted felon. Many people within the Special Forces community believed Braden was D.B. Cooper. 
He joined the military at age 16 and went on to serve with the 101st Airborne during World War II. He went on from there to become one of the military's top parachutists, often representing the Army in skydiving tournaments. During the 1960s, Braden led a classified commando unit of Green Berets in Vietnam called the Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observation Group, or MACVSOG, which is a mouthful I hope I never have to say again. In December 1966, Braden deserted his unit in Vietnam and made his way to the Congo to serve as a mercenary. He was caught and arrested by CIA agents and taken back to the United States where he was court-martialed. Despite having committed a capital offense by deserting during wartime, Braden was given an honorable discharge, but at the same time he was barred from re-enlisting in the military in exchange for his continued secrecy about his top-secret activities in Vietnam. Braden was profiled in the October 1967 issue of Ramparts magazine, where he was described as someone with a secret death wish. Following his discharge from the Army in 1967, Braden's activities remained somewhat unknown. At the time of D.B. Cooper's hijacking, it's believed that Braden was working as a truck driver for Consolidated Freightways, which was headquartered in Vancouver, Washington, just across the Columbia River from Portland, and not far from the suspected drop zone. During the 1970s, Braden was investigated by the FBI for stealing $250,000 during a trucking scam, although he was never charged with the crime. In 1980, Braden was arrested in Pennsylvania for driving a stolen vehicle with fictitious plates and for not having a valid driver's license. Sometime later, Braden ended up being sent to a federal penitentiary in Pennsylvania. On the surface, Ted Braden looks like a strong suspect. He certainly had the expertise needed to survive the jump from the airplane. At the time of the skyjacking, he would have been the right age, too, 43 years old. Yet for some reason, the FBI decided Braden wasn't their guy. There are some Cooperologists out there who smell a cover-up in the case against Ted Braden. Some people have suggested that the CIA purposely steered attention away from Braden in order to continue to cover up the activities of the top-secret Green Beret group he led in Vietnam. Throughout the laundry list of D.B. Cooper suspects, you'll find a handful who straight-up confessed to being Cooper, one of whom was Barbara Drayton. She was a recreational pilot and University of Washington librarian who was born Robert Drayton. Back in 1969, two years before the skyjacking, Drayton underwent gender reassignment surgery. During World War II, Barbara served in the U.S. Merchant Marines. After the war, she worked with explosives in the construction field and aspired to be a professional airline pilot. But she was unable to obtain a commercial pilot's license herself. According to Barbara, this made her bitter and angry and she decided to get back at the airline industry for their insurmountable rules. She said she staged the hijacking two years after her reassignment surgery, presenting herself as a man in order to mask her identity. She even told friends that the ransom money was hidden in a cistern near Woodburn, Oregon. Although she later recanted her story after learning that hijacking charges could still be brought. That cistern she mentioned was eventually searched, but nothing was found. Another suspect with a grudge against the government was Joe Lakich, a retired U.S. Army major and Korean War veteran whose daughter was killed less than two months before the hijacking, during a botched hostage negotiation with the FBI. The events leading to his daughter's death would actually go on to be studied by hostage negotiators for decades as a prime example of what not to do during a hostage situation. 
Lakich and his wife sued the FBI and ultimately an appeals court ruled in their favor. One of the main reasons Lakich is considered a potential D.B. Cooper suspect is because of the clip-on tie that was found on board the plane following the hijacking. Forensic analysis of the tie revealed microscopic particles of uncommon metals, such as unalloyed titanium. It has been speculated that D.B. Cooper may have worked in some sort of manufacturing environment. At the time of the hijacking, Lakich worked as a production supervisor at an electronics capacitor factory and would have likely been exposed to the same sort of metals that were found in the tie. Although Ralph Himmelsbach became the best-known agent who investigated the D.B. Cooper case, following his retirement, the case was reassigned to Special Agent Larry Carr, and he took a different tactic than his predecessors. Carr became much more open with sharing information with the public and asking for more outside help. He even shared the case files with a civilian cold case team led by Tom Kay, a paleontologist from the Burke Museum of Natural History in Seattle. Kay's team is made up of a large number of scientists who use some of the latest forensic techniques to examine the evidence, including the clip-on tie. After studying the tie under an electron microscope, they discovered tiny particles of rare minerals. One of these minerals was actually used by Boeing as part of a supersonic jet project. Now, this is far from conclusive, but it does open the door to the possibility that Cooper may have worked for Boeing in some capacity. Over time, a string of new suspects would emerge, some of whom have not only the expertise necessary to have made the jump, but also have some surprising connections to the forensic evidence discovered. One of these is Walter Recca. In 2016, the FBI officially closed the investigation into D.B. Cooper. But two years later, an 84-year-old man named Carl Loren published a book in which he claimed that his best friend Walter Recca was D.B. Cooper. He even revealed that he had the man on tape confessing to the crime. Recca died in 2014, so there's no way to question him personally. But before he died, Loren recorded the man providing detailed descriptions of how he pulled off the most famous skyjacking in history. Recca was a former Army paratrooper and intelligence operator at the time of the skyjacking. He was also a former iron worker who had been part of the crew who built the Grand Coulee Dam, spanning the Columbia River, the same river that runs past Tina Bar. Over the years he knew him, Carl Lawrence said occasionally Recca would drop hints that he was D.B. Cooper. But it wouldn't be until the day before Thanksgiving in 2008 when the man finally flat out confessed to being the skyjacker. Over the following weeks, Recca agreed to allow Lauren to record his confession. He even wrote a notarized letter giving Lauren permission to reveal these tapes to the world after he was dead. In his confession, Recca detailed how he managed to survive the nighttime jump. He said that after he emerged from the woods near the town of Cleelum, east of Seattle, he met a trucker at a small cafe outside of town. Lauren managed to track this trucker down, and the trucker recalled meeting with a stranger on the night of the skyjacking. The trucker said the man asked him to relay directions on the phone to a friend so he could be picked up. There are some problems with this story, though. The town of Cleelum is about 150 miles away from the drop zone where the FBI believes Cooper jumped. At the same time, though, if First Officer Bill Radichak's information was accurate, then the plane could have drifted outside the expected drop zone. Another major issue with Carl Lawrence's story, though, is that out of the many Cooper suspects that have been proposed, Recca looks the least like the sketches. Despite Lauren's insistence that his friend Walter Recca was D.B. Cooper, the FBI refused to reopen the investigation. 
Another strong suspect who did bear a striking resemblance to the D.B. Cooper sketches was Robert Rackstraw. He was born in Columbus, Ohio in 1943, and his background made him one of the top suspects in the eyes of a lot of Cooperologists. After dropping out of high school, Rackstraw became a U.S. Army paratrooper and explosives expert during the Vietnam War. Although his tour of duty back in the 1970s earned him numerous medals, he was kicked out of the military the following year for misconduct, including lying about finishing high school. Throughout his life, Rackstraw had numerous run-ins with the law. A former deputy district attorney who prosecuted the man for fraud and theft described him as a hell of a con man. You'd buy a used car from him every time. But despite multiple arrests, Rackstraw always seemed to avoid being convicted of any crime. He was even once charged with murdering his stepfather, although once again he was acquitted. His lucky streak ended in 1978 when he was charged with and convicted of forging checks and stealing a plane. For that, he spent two years behind bars. Records indicate that Rackstraw was among the FBI's top suspects as being D.B. Cooper. But at the same time, many agents dismissed him as a suspect because at 28 years old, he would have been several years younger than the eyewitness descriptions of Cooper. Years later, a filmmaker named Tom Colbert, who led a 40-person investigation team, published a book and filmed a History Channel miniseries titled D.B. Cooper Case Closed, in which he once again shined a spotlight on Robert Rackstraw. It's true that Rackstraw had both the technical know-how and the chutzpah to have pulled off such an audacious crime. He had experience both with parachutes and explosives from his time in the Army. In addition, side-by-side -side comparisons of the man's mugshots do bear a striking resemblance to the D.B. Cooper sketches. Colbert's team also got their hands on a couple of coded letters which Cooper allegedly wrote. The team enlisted the aid of a former Army codebreaker named Rick Sherwood, who claimed to have cracked the code which read, Please tell the lackey cops D.B. Cooper is not my real name. I am First Lieutenant Robert Rackstraw. Colbert came to believe adamantly that Rackstraw was D.B. Cooper. He believes that Rackstraw was a narcissist who thought he was smarter than the authorities and would never be caught. For the most part, throughout his life, Rackstraw remained coy about being D.B. Cooper right up until his death in 2019. Although Colbert said the man did make statements alluding to being Cooper on several occasions. Rackstraw even gave interviews on some news stations and said he was D.B. Cooper, although later on he would retract these statements claiming it was all just a gag. Colbert also believed that Rackstraw, like Ted Braden, was involved in some top-secret intelligence operations in Vietnam, which caused the CIA to step in and try to direct attention away from the man. An NBC journalist named Pete Noyes said some former FBI agents tried to convince him not to interview Rackstraw about being D.B. Cooper, claiming he was nothing but a con man. One of the most recent Cooper suspects is a man named William J. Smith. In November of 2018, the Oregonian published an article proposing Smith as a suspect. Smith was a New Jersey native and World War II veteran. After high school, he enlisted in the United States Navy and volunteered for combat aircrew training. After the war, Smith went to work for the Lehigh Valley Railroad. The railroad went bankrupt in 1970, causing a massive number of layoffs and a loss of pensions. It's been theorized that Smith held a grudge against the airline industry because he blamed them for bringing down the railroads. That sounds like a bit of a stretch to me, but sure, let's go with it. One theory goes that Smith's knowledge of the rail lines could have provided him a means of escape after jumping out of the plane and making his way through the forest. 
At the time of the skyjacking in 1971, Smith would have been 43 years old, the age most people say Cooper was. He was also 5'10 with a dark complexion, both of which also fit eyewitness descriptions. One additional detail that's not often reported is that Smith had a fold of skin on his neck and chin that would have been noticeable. That was the result of either an accident or surgery. One of the passengers on board the plane, Bill Mitchell, who sat near Cooper, said he noticed a fold of skin on the man's neck protruding from his shirt collar. It's been suggested that Smith worked with an accomplice named Dan Clare who was born in Canada. This may provide some connection to the series of French comic books featuring a character named Dan Cooper. Another possible connection to the name comes from a childhood acquaintance of Smith's named Ira Daniel Cooper, who was killed in World War II. Smith also worked around heavy machinery, coal, and freight that might have provided some of the microscopic minerals found on the clip-on tie. In addition, he had access to railroad flares, which could have been used to create a realistic-looking bomb. There are a number of Cooperologists who believe Smith was also the man who contacted Arthur Max Gunther back in 1972, claiming to be D.B. Cooper before he cut off all communications. Gunther would go on to publish a book in 1985 titled D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened, detailing his conversations with the mystery man. But the problem with all the evidence against William Smith is the same one plaguing many Cooper suspects. It's all circumstantial. There simply is no tangible evidence definitively pointing to him being D.B. Cooper. A lot of things do fit with Smith, but you can say the same thing about every suspect I've described here. Smith died in 2018, so there's no way to question him further either. But let's face it, whoever D.B. Cooper was, he's almost certainly dead now. The man smoked a lot of cigarettes, and considering he was likely in his 40s back in 1971, if he is still alive, he'd probably be at least in his 90s by now. But D.B. Cooper has gone on to be immortal in the eyes of a lot of people. Back in 1971, he was viewed as a gutsy folk hero. Cooper became an anti-establishment symbol, sticking it to the man. The fact that he didn't actually harm anyone, and he was actually able to pull off such a daring skyjacking, has elevated him to heroic status in a lot of people's eyes. D.B. Cooper has gone on to be the subject of countless songs, movies, and TV shows. You can find his face plastered on posters and t-shirts. There are even annual events celebrating his audacious crime. CooperCon is an annual convention dedicated to the mysterious skyjacker. On November 24th, the town of Ariel, Washington, a place widely believed to be inside the drop zone, holds its own annual D.B. Cooper celebration. They even have a D.B. Cooper lookalike contest. There are multiple bars and restaurants across the country named after D.B. Cooper. Truth be told, we'll probably never know with absolute certainty who Cooper really was. As long as there is money to be made in D.B. Cooper books and documentaries, there will always be people speculating about the Skyjacker's true identity. In the end, what we're left with is an ever-growing list of suspects and constant theories about the one that got away. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Briscoe, Derek, and TJ for signing up and helping support the show. I couldn't do this without you. And thanks to all my other patrons for their continued support as well. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe and give us a 5-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. 
Each one of your ratings and reviews really helps us out by spreading the good word about the show and growing our family of listeners just like you. I also want to direct you over to my new YouTube channel, Dark Chronicles, where I've been posting all sorts of videos related to the sort of topics you've come to enjoy here. I also post short-form videos over on TikTok and Instagram as well. Besides that, you can find us on Facebook and, well, whatever the heck Twitter is called this week. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our back catalog of shows. Feel free to reach out in any of those places, or even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.